Hello, everyone. This is Marisol Cortez, co-editor of Deceleration at Deceleration.news. And in today's podcast, we are going to be talking with some folks from the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, CDER. And they are an organization that assists communities with passing rights of nature, ordinances, and other kinds of legislation, as well as community bills of rights, which have been used to halt fracking um, and other forms of destructive um, development, uh, which have been used as well in Ecuador to change their constitution to include a, uh, a central recognition of the universal rights of Pachamama or, or Mother Earth. And specifically, we're going to be talking with Thomas Lindsay, who's an attorney and uh, senior counsel at CDER, as well as two local organizers, Lauren Munoz and Liam McMillan. And we're going to talk about just kind of broadly what the rights of nature approach is and what makes it unique, and uh, as well as what it has been able to accomplish in other communities around the world and in the United States and what it might look like here in the watersheds of, of, um, of South Texas. My name is Tom Lindsay, and I'm a senior legal counsel for an organization known as the Center for Democratic and Environmental uh, I'm Lauren Munoz. I'm volunteering with Liam at CDR, and I've also done some local organizing here in San Antonio. I'd really like to talk about just, you know, for somebody who's totally unfamiliar with the concept of the rights of nature, um, can y'all explain what that means and where it comes from and how that approach differs from other legal or philosophical bases for environmental protection? Sure. So I'll, I'll take a shot at that first and turn it over to these guys. But uh, so the rights of nature concept is an easy one. It's about legally enforceable rights akin to human rights for ecosystems. So think forests, rivers, oceans as having some kind of legally defensible rights. So essentially elevating the protection of ecosystems and nature to the highest level possible under our Western system of law. Uh, so that's the concept. It's it's an easy concept to understand. It's very complex in how it's actually implemented, because we live in a system which favors, in some ways, property and commerce as certain concepts in our system of law, and and that's how the structure of law is built, or that's what the structure of law is built around. Whether it's a constitutional structure of law or the statutory structure of law, and so this concept of nature having rights kind of runs contrary to some of that, because today under a Western system of law in the U.S., if you own a piece of property, you know, you have a, a deed to a 10-acre piece of land, that deed carries with it the legal authority to destroy that 10-acre piece of land, the ecosystems on that 10-acre piece of land. If you want to put in a landing strip for your private helicopter, you can do so. There's nothing in the law that stops you. And so, in, in essence, we've had a system of environmental law in this country that's been based on trying to restrict those property rights. And so, environmental law has been subordinate to those property and commerce concepts within the law. So, while it's a simple concept to wrap our heads around ecosystems having rights, because, of course, in our system of law, corporations have rights. And corporations are not people, at least they, you know, corporation itself can't get up and walk around and go to a restaurant and vote and do those types of things. Uh, but for some reason, ecosystems and nature upon which we depend for our own survival, as well as all life on the planet, 
doesn't have any recognized rights. And instead, we've tried to protect it through doing other things that fall short of that rights recognition. And so when we give talks, we talk about, you know, nature status today, ecosystem status today, like the San Antonio River, uh, for example, stands in the same place as women in the 1840s. Uh, that women were property of their husband or property of their older brother, uh, but they were property under the law, not rights-bearing people, or uh, African-Americans, uh, slaves in the 1840s, uh, who were not persons, did not have rights, and only had certain protections derivative through slave owners, so the people actually owned them. And so I don't think anybody would argue that that kind of legal system is appropriate for today, uh, and in fact, we argue and the communities we work with assert that the system of law that we have today basically treats nature as, uh, as, as not a rights-bearing entity, uh, but as a piece of property under the law. And the rights of nature concept is to shift ecosystems and nature from just being treated as a non-person or as a thing uh, to being treated as something with legally enforceable rights which in turn frees up people who care about ecosystems and nature to actually have more leeway to protect those ecosystems and nature in a time when overall degradation and destruction of nature and ecosystems is at an all-time high. So it's kind of a crisis moment. Uh, crisis moments produce big transformative paradigm shifts. Uh, rights of nature, I think, is one of those paradigm shifts that's long overdue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... In just in picking up on what you were saying about that conceptual shift that needs to take place. I mean, a lot of what we do at Deceleration is try to introduce new frameworks for thinking about the work that's already happening on the ground. Uh, so rights of nature is one of those concepts alongside things like degrowth, alongside things like when we read um, from more kind of indigenous led movements in Latin America. Um, can you talk about, but I mean, I think, um, you know, there is something so entrenched in not just the legal system, but in conceptual frameworks as to be not just ideological, but even like ontological, like on the level of the basic ways we understand reality, this idea that nature is property or that nature is commodity, um, that nature is not um, animate, that nature is not a person, um, it's just it's so deeply entrenched in in the West, right? Um, can you talk about some of the 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 best strategies you've seen in terms of uh, like organizing wise on the ground for shifting that conceptual um, notion of nature as property to one that sees it as a rights bearing entity? Like what work on the community level? Yeah, so it's very true that rights of nature is a foreign concept to Western civilization law, but it's not a foreign concept to indigenous cultures. So indigenous communities have always understood nature as being something else other than property, something that couldn't be owned. And in addition to that, whereas indigenous cultures have taught us that um, that framework, that concept, that value system, you know, where the indigenous communities talk about the flying people and the swimming people, you know, being the salmon, being the swimming people and the birds being the flying people, that there's a different understanding of the role of nature in those cultures and societies. And I think in, in white culture and whatever we want to call it back in the 70s was when 
a real breach started, which was a guy named Christopher Stone, who was a professor, law professor, still is at USC, uh, wrote an article called Should Trees Have Standing? Basically positing the possibility that people should be able to represent natural objects, for want of a better word. So forests and uh parks and rivers and lakes and oceans and those types of things. And the idea kind of picked up some credence when Justice Douglas of the U.S. Supreme Court put it into a dissenting opinion in a case called Sierra Club versus Morton, uh, where the Disney Corporation wanted to come in and build this huge ski resort in California. And the Sierra Club brought suit to try to stop the development from occurring. And the Supreme Court threw out the case because they said that the Sierra Club members did, hadn't shown injury uh, which is a requirement for getting into court. You have to show that you use the natural resource, or in this case, use the area that was being destined for the Disney development, and that the Sierra Club members couldn't show that they had been injured personally enough to maintain the case. To which Justice Douglas said, how stupid is that? <laughs> that, that people have to prove injury in their exploitation or use of a natural place to be able to defend that natural place. And so in the, the dissent, he posited that uh, ecosystems should be able to stand on their own and actually be represented by individual people, but that the interest being defended should be that of the ecosystem or natural community. So skip forward about 30 years, uh, and this concept was picked up by a couple communities in Pennsylvania that we had been working with who were trying to stop uh, PCB-laden dredge from coming in from the Delaware River. There was a big proposal to dredge the Delaware River and take the PCB dredge and dump it into old mine pits in a little place called Tamaqua Borough, just northwest uh, of Philadelphia. And folks there said, well, we want to stop this. We want to say no to it. And so we assisted them to draft an ordinance that banned the dumping of this kind of PCB-laden dredge in the community. And while we were doing that work, people in the community said, well, wait a minute. Community here doesn't just mean the homo sapiens, <laughs> the people that are walking in the community. Because... This dredge could come in and affect the the Little Schuylkill River or the other tributaries that flow through the through the municipality, and if those get injured, we really have no recourse uh, to fix it because the Clean Water Act is basically built around human concepts of fishable and swimmable, and really from a homocentric kind of view, but uh, that these kinds of things can kill off ecosystems or severely damage them. And so people in the community of Tamaqua said, we need to, to expand our definition of community. So it doesn't just include the two-legged people, but it actually includes everybody here. And that was the beginning of the first rights of nature law on the world, which was passed in Little Tamaqua Borough, 7,000 people. Uh, and folks there adopted it into law through their city council. Their borough council uh, voted it into being, and that was back in 2006. And what's great about these ideas, you know, as hard as they are to push uphill in a Western culture that's dominated by property and commerce concepts, is that once the idea is birthed, it's really hard to stuff it back into the toothpaste or tooth, you know, <laughs> to stuff it back into the toothpaste too. And so what happened next was we got a call from folks in Ecuador who were working with Ecuadorians on drafting a new constitution for the country of Ecuador. And we traveled down to Ecuador to meet with the Constitutional Assembly and help them draft new language that made it into the Ecuadorian constitution, was overwhelmingly ratified by the public, uh, is now law, constitutional law in the country. They were the first place to shift 
nationally from a property-based system of environmental protection to a rights-based system of environmental protection. There's been about 60 enforcement cases enforcing those provisions down in the country. It then boomeranged back to the U.S. We now have about 36, uh, three dozen communities in the U.S., including the city of Pittsburgh, which has adopted these rights of nature laws. And, uh, and then it went back to the international level. You now have courts in India and Colombia and Bangladesh uh, ruling that this is a new emerging norm of international environmental law and not waiting for legislation to be passed, but just doing it themselves through the courts. And so, you know, there have been a number of places where people have begun to reimagine what it means to be part of this biotic community mm -hmm. and to understand the severe limitations of the law in terms of how the law actually protects currently the natural environment and the fact that it doesn't, that after 40 years of the major environmental laws being in place, we're now in worse shape by almost every major environmental statistic than we were 40 years ago. So something's not years. We need to learn from these prior movements. We need to embrace these indigenous cultural values and we need to move in a direction where we actually can protect ecosystems and natural communities. Mm -hmm. So it sounds kind of like the, rather than the concepts change and then the laws or then the, um, you know, the environmental protection mechanisms change, it's actually that these ordinances or, or these um, rewritten constitution, like the legal part becomes the becomes the mechanism for the organizing to to change the concept culturally. I think that's very much true. And I, I don't know about everybody else here, but I got tired a number of years ago about going to conferences where people talked about how much they love, love nature. I mean, it's great to love nature. I, I love nature. But unless you have a legal system that allows you to actually implement that love and enforce that love, it's pointless. And it tends to be that when we get together, we think that they're, that we're doing a cultural shift of some kind just by talking to each other about it. And it's not enough. We're in a system that doesn't care what we talk about. It, in some ways, it's not a democratic system that cares what ha happens when large groups of people get together with common values. You actually have to force the change. And these laws are a force. They are picking a fight. They are creating a confrontation. A lot of times between the localities, the cities, towns, villages, and counties where people are gathering to drive these laws into place, and the state or federal government. You have in Florida right now about a dozen efforts to recognize rights for various rivers in Florida because things have gotten so bad in Florida from a water quality standpoint, red tide, blue-green algae, manatee die-off, you name it. It's, uh, it's the Holocaust. It's an environmental Holocaust that's happening in places like Florida. So people are moving this, this forward at the local level where they have control or some degree of control over their municipal governments. Mm -hmm. But the state there, the state legislature has now adopted a bill that has prohibited municipalities from adopting rights of nature laws. And so it's funny because on our side of the, of the line, environmental environmentalists and people that are protecting nature side of the line, we sometimes look askance at rights of nature, like, oh, that's crazy. It's not practical. It's not realistic. Meanwhile, on the other side, the corporations, they know exactly what's happening, and they understand the, uh, the efficacy and the dangerousness to their extraction and exploitation of resources through this tool, and they're taking actions to stop it. So I've always found it kind of curious that on our side, we censor ourselves about what's possible, we do it all the time as activists. We silo ourselves 
So you go to conferences where the timber activists are in one room and the water activists are in another, when in reality, it's all the same thing. But we sense our, ourselves about what's possible. Meanwhile, the guys on the other side, they know what's possible if we actually do it, if we actually have the, the wherewithal and the courage to do it, mm-hmm. that they understand they're proving the concept because they're trying to stop it because they understand how effective it could be. Yet we are self-censoring ourselves to say, oh, my God, it's too much, too quick, too fast. And we stop ourselves from doing it. So, you know, it's time to move. I'm not sure what everybody's waiting for. The major environmental groups poo-poo rights of nature all the time. But, you know, get out of the way. It's time to do something different. Otherwise, we can just kiss this place goodbye. So you brought up Florida, and it made me think about Texas here. Um, how, would, how would that work? How would that approach work? in a place like Texas where we've seen time and time again, anytime we try to pass something on the local level, whether it's fracking within city limits, whether it's plastic bag bans, whether it's paid sick time, it's just struck down, struck down, struck down by the Texas legislature or by the the courts here. Um, You know, in in Texas in particular, you know, we're sort of blessed, I guess, with this uh, state government that professes to champion limited government, professes to champion local control, unless it threatens the interests of big business and specifically the oil and gas industry. So what are the strategies that have worked to get around that um, that reality that we're living in in places like Texas and Florida? Yes. Yeah, so, so Texas is really no different than the rest of the country, which is you put your, your finger on it, which is that Local lawmaking, when you're passing local laws to like require people to to mow down their noxious weeds every couple of weeks, nobody cares. I mean, it's it's nobody cares from a power standpoint. Okay. Nobody comes in and says you don't have the power to do that. You don't have the authority to do that. But when a community moves forward to ban fracking, or moves forward to stop a pipeline, or moves forward to do something else in this decision-making prerogative stuff that's been reserved to certain corporate entities under the law, you have a frenzy of activity. And that frenzy of activity over the last hundred years has really produced a series of legal doctrines that stop municipalities and people within those cities, towns, villages, and counties from moving forward to actually stop projects that are harmful to them. And so we don't need to get into the details, but one is preemption. So this, the one legal doctrine is preemption. The state steps in, passes an oil and gas act, for example, that says you shall allow fracking within your community and you have no power to say no to it. And there's also this stupid little rule called Dillon's rule, which uh, was a product of the railroad corporations as they were moving west to try to clear municipal governments out of the way from obstructing that movement of freight uh, and railroads to the West it's called Dillon's Rule. And Dillon's Rule says that if the state has not given your municipality the power to legislate in a certain area, you automatically don't have it. So preemption is one where they've spoken and said, you don't have it. Dillon's Rule says in the default, if the legislature hasn't specifically authorized you to do something, you can't do it. And then there are the doctrines of corporate rights. Corporations have constitutional rights in the United States. So whereas nature doesn't, ecosystems don't at this point, corporations do. How does that affect things? Well, if a corporation has a permit to put a frack well into your community, state or federal permit, it's generally recognized that if the municipality, the community, the city, town, village, or county moves forward to interfere with that activity that's controlled by the permit, that the corporation can sue you, (laughs) that the corporation can sue your city, saying that you lack the authority 
uh, to do what you've done, and you're interfering with the corporation's property rights under the law because the permit itself, even though it's a piece of paper, is a piece of property. And if you interfere with the ability or right of the corporation to extract resources within the community, you owe them money in the amount of the resource that they can extract. That's how the law is set up. The, the default is that the corporation has the right if they hold the permit. So long, long story longer is that the law has been very carefully constructed for the past 150 years to stop people from doing anything real within the communities where they live. And so this isn't just about rights of nature. It's about democratic authority mm -hmm. to control the future of your own community. And we've spent 20 years rolling out a legal theory, legal argument, that's based on a constitutional right of local community self-government that people have the right to govern their own communities when they pass laws of a certain nature. And the certain nature that, that we argue about is when municipalities expand civil, political, and environmental rights. So we're used to the federal government having a Bill of Rights, we're used to the state government, Texas has a Declaration of Rights, a Bill of Rights in their state constitution. We're not used to thinking about municipalities having the ability to adopt rights-creating mechanisms or to create their own Bill of Rights. So what if San Antonio, city of San Antonio, had a Bill of Rights? What might it look like? Could it have rights of nature in it, that ecosystems within the city of San Antonio have certain rights? Absolutely. Are you gonna run up against the system of law that says you can't do it? Yes, you are, that's just fact. How do you get through it? Well, you create new jurisprudence. You have to create new, either judge-made law, or in other places, people have given up on the courts and are moving towards changing their own constitutions, their state constitutions, to recognize a right of local community self-government. But one way or the other, these, these strands of thought are combined in one fabric. It, the rights of nature is dependent upon enlarging the portal of municipal authority so that cities, towns, villages, and counties and people within them can actually enlarge that portal far enough to actually get these rights expanding laws into place. That's the key. So it's a democratic movement. It's not just an environmental movement. It's really a revolt yeah. by people who are revolting to say this structure of government's not working for us anymore and we need a different one. Yeah, that's one of the things that um, like I find so inspiring and interesting about um, the work that y'all are doing is 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 because time and time again, locally, what we see um, is that those two fights are always one and the same, right? Like, uh, you know, San Antonio has this really deep history of fighting for what might be called a right to the city, you know, so the right of, of ordinary people to have a say in what happens to the place where we live, you know, whether that uh, has to do with housing, whether that has to do with water. Um, against, especially when we're up against sort of the outsized influence of developers uh, and other corporate interests. Um, but at the same time, like, I think that there's not, even though the, the connection between right to the city and rights of nature sort of implicit in the work that's taking place, like it hasn't really been brought explicitly to the sort of like conscious, um, uh, a level of consciousness, right? Um, that is, we kind of tend to, to cite, like you were saying, we silo the work. You know, on the one side, there's, there's housing justice, there's displacement struggles, there's struggles around land use. On the other side, there's sort of environmental um, protection work. But, but they're really um, actually 
deeply interlinked. And how can we kind of strengthen that interconnection in people's conscious minds, right, as they're doing this work? How can we um, how can we push the concept of the right to the city further? How can we deepen it so that it incorporates, um, ju- you know, just for example, like if we're fighting over land rights, so we're fighting over the right of people not to be displaced from their homes. How do we push that idea of land even further? Land isn't just um, again, land isn't just property. Land is nature, and nature itself has rights. Nature has a right to remain in the way that people have a right to remain on the land, or birds have a right to remain on the land, right? Um, um, how, how can we strengthen that interconnection? And maybe, if I don't know if any of the local organizers wanted to speak to that. Yes, um, I think it comes down to one of the central ideas of rights of nature, which is pushing back against this anthropocentric narrative where humans are something separate from nature. And what happens when you have that sort of distinction between these two movements is where you get social justice movements where the people are separate from environmental movements. Right. And I think recently um, people have have started to realize the intersection, the term um, environmental justice, environmental racism, those are becoming more prevalent in conversations of political and social issues. But I think until we um, kind of ingrain this idea that humans are not something separate from nature, we're something part of it, I think that's when we'll truly realize um, the necessity of right to the city in order to move our environmental movements further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And st- kind of sticking with the local level, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in to hear more about um, what you are doing here locally in San Antonio. It sounds like you're kind of laying the groundwork for uh, like a local campaign. Um, so how did you decide to get involved here specifically? Um, and then how do you decide what a campaign should focus on in a given community, whether it's, you know, the river, whether it's the aquifer, um, the plants, the, the wildlife that's here? Tell me more about the work that's happening, that's starting to happen here locally. Yeah, so... As far as realizing the necessity of it, um, what we have here isn't enough. Obviously, in San Antonio, we just recently passed the Climate Action Adaptation Plan, which is a step in the right direction, but it's just not enough. It leaves this very vague background um, based on the Paris Climate Accords. Yet, there's still not this um, explicit accountability, and it's still based on this homocentric view where we can we're able to view nature as a resource rather than having this intrinsic value. And I think when we view it as a natural resource, it kind of inherently applies that we're going to set any environmental standards around wealth and property. And those who have wealth and property are going to um, be those with these corporate interests, so oil, natural gas, coal. So rather than um, us making environmental law and role of the people of our ecosystems is going to be instead favoring um, those who are polluting our environment the most. Mm-hmm. So are you thinking in terms of passing kind of like what Tom was describing, like a bill of rights or an ordinance or um, like if we're thinking in terms of um, if the struggle is is primarily on the front of climate, you know, what what is the proper anchor, right, for rights of nature um, um, campaign? 
Is it the air? Is it, um, yeah, just tell me more about how you're thinking about those kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. I think as we were talking about earlier, any action for a city as large as San Antonio especially is going to require a sort of change in mindset in the way the law and legal system works. So first, um, creating law that empowers us in San Antonio to make our own decisions and enforce them more. And then from there, well, it'd be nice to be able to protect an ecosystem as large as, say, the San Antonio River. I think we'll have to focus on just protecting whatever is most feasible and from there creating this legal precedent of rights of nature. That then, when once we have that protection, we can go and protect the larger things. Because when someone's polluting the San Antonio River, we can say, well, we've established this idea that nature has rights, it has this intrinsic value, it has this right to reproduce and sustain and maintain itself. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's kind of just a domino effect. Once you protect this smaller part, you just kind of get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. So it would be kind of, you're thinking like around the river? Yes, that's what we're thinking of so far. But um, right now we're just kind of building a coalition of groups, environmental groups who might have similar interests. Mm -hmm. And once, once you get more in touch with other people who have experience, um, kind of go from there and see what has worked, what hasn't worked for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, any other final things that you didn't get a chance to speak to, Liam? I don't know if there was anything you wanted to bring up or um, any last questions that that you maybe wanted to be asked weren't asked. I think uh, one of the issues is how these laws move. I mean, you touched on the fact that the city council most likely wouldn't pass anything and. I think that's been the expectation in other areas is that the work has to be done through the through an initiative process or through some way where residents have the power to actually make law themselves. So whereas in different parts of the country, like Pittsburgh, the city council of Pittsburgh unanimously adopted a rights of nature law to stop fracking within the city. So that was an example of elected officials taking steps to, to pass something directly. And in Mora County, New Mexico, one of the only counties to pass rights of nature laws was done through the county commissioners. But in most other places, you have to go over the city council's heads. You have to go over the county commissioner's heads. And in states like Texas, Texas is lucky in that you have initiative processes. So in San Antonio, uh, people could circulate a petition, gather signatures equal to 10 percent. I think it's 10 percent of the registered voters in San Antonio and put an initiative directly on the ballot for a vote, which then binds the city council. So there are ways to do the lawmaking that don't involve begging and pleading elected officials because a lot of our activists over the past, uh, activism over the past four years has really been about begging and pleading or pressure politics. If we organize enough people and convince enough people and elected officials that something will happen. And I think that's been a monumental failure that we need to move from the begging and pleading to the requiring and demanding mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise it just hasn't been functioning. So I think in most places it's going to be dependent upon people to actually go over the heads of their elected officials. Although in some places, you know, like Florida, for example, in Orange County today, uh, the 30th largest county in the United States and by virtue of population, they voted to put uh, rights of the Wakaiva and Econlock-Hatchee rivers on the ballot in November. So that was a governmental entity voting to put it on. 
But I think the instances, at least over the past 20 years of that happening, are fairly small. And most of it's happened simply by people's activism to go over the heads of their elected officials. And I think what Lauren and Liam are, you know, in the beginning stages of in San Antonio to try to figure this out and bring people together, I think that's, you know, will either result in one of those two pathways. But making law requires, you know, either good elected officials who are willing to step out of their normal trajectory and do something amazing, mm-hmm. or people power to circulate petitions, get signatures, and put it on the ballot over the heads of their elected officials. Right. Cool. Well, thank you very, very much for sharing your insights and your expertise and the work that you're doing here locally. It's exciting to see this um, in motion finally. Hopefully, something we can get something moving. And... Um, yeah, just appreciate your time and uh, your energy and your passion and your knowledge. So, thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you.